Our psalm reading this morning comes from Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. For the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, the flock under His care. Today, if only you would hear His voice. Do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massah in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For forty years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath on oath in my anger. They shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you noticed in the bulletin, it says that this morning is the fourth Sunday of Easter. Now, maybe like you, I grew up thinking that Easter was one day a year. It was the, the day that came after the week that my grandmother took me down to the uh, department store and bought me a new set of pants, a new shirt, and a little clip-on tie, and then we had an Easter egg hunt in her front yard. That was Easter for me. But centuries ago, the church decided wisely that Easter was not just a one-day event, but they made it into a celebration that stretched for 50 days. And so we're in the, the fourth week of that. And we should see in this stretched out celebration, not only the importance of Easter, because although the resurrection is a one-time event, it's meant to be experienced and lived out in everyday life. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead isn't some event that happened just way back in human history. And it's not something that, if you're a Christian, only happened once back in your history, but it's something that is to be propulsive. It's something that is to be, um, it is to give life to your everyday life. It's a cosmic event that changed the world. And if we understand it, if we understand Easter, then we begin to see it transform our lives from the inside out. And the Bible, Jesus, gives us instructions on how we're to cultivate this resurrection life, how we're to grow it, how we're to nourish it. And that's partly why we've chosen to undertake this series, this sermon series, to explore the powerful resources of the resurrection. How are we to take hold of it? How is it to change our everyday attitudes? How is it to change the priorities that we have? How is the life, the sacrifice, the resurrection of Jesus, how do we cultivate that with life practices, with holy habits, if you will, that we give ourselves to in order to see resurrection life flourish and grow within our lives and within this church. Well, that's what we're looking at this morning, and we're going to look at that continually through this series. And this morning, we're going to look at it in terms of worship. How does the Easter truth, how does resurrection inform our worship? And as we get started with that, would you pray with me? Dear Jesus, we pray that you would meet us this morning 
in all of our complexity and diversity, in our believing, in our doubting, in our receiving, or maybe even wrestling with what is set up here this morning. Whatever we're looking for this morning, would you give us courage to face another day? Would you give, this, give us direction for the big decision that we may be facing this week? Would you give us meaning? Father, how can we live with purpose in the midst of a confusing and challenging world? Would you give us that? Would you provide that for us? Some of us here need comfort. We are hurting. We are lonely. We are hungry. Would you comfort those of us in those those circumstances and help us to remember that whatever we're here intentionally looking for and how dissimilar those things can appear on the surface, help us to remember that we're all very much the same. That none of us has it all together. That all of us have wounds and pains and hardship. All of us have fears about the future. And all of us, if we're honest, are deeply broken and fragmented. But we have this in common too, that you seek us out. That you seek us out with love. That you long to have relationship with us. That you long to heal us. Teach us to do that through worship. And Father, let the words of my mouth be worship. Let our hearing be worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the front of your bulletin, I quoted Ralph Waldo Emerson. And he says this, A person will worship something. Have no doubt about that. We may think our tribute is paid in secret in the dark recesses of our hearts, but it will out. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and character. Therefore, it behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. What you are worshiping, what I am worshiping, you are becoming, I am becoming. And maybe we should have started this whole series with this one because it's so foundational. What you think about, what you dream about, what you long for, you become like that. What you worship, you will come to resemble. And therefore, we see that worship is not simply an effect of spiritual formation, but it's actually a cause. Worship is a cause of spiritual formation. Well, we should ask, what is worship? What does this word mean? Well, worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something that involves your whole person. Worship is ascribing value to something in a way, in a manner, that involves your whole person, your whole life, your character, your decisions, your behavior. We see that in verse 3. We see, first of all, the psalmist says, For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. God, he is saying, is of ultimate significance and value. He qualitatively surpasses every other object of worship, everyone and everything else. He's uniquely deserving of our worship. The psalmist is giving a proclamation of worship. And in his prayers, he is recognizing, he is ascribing ultimate value and worth to God. But notice the other part of this that we said it involves the whole person. What he is saying here is worship is not just some abstract claim, but there's a personal response involved. There's an action to take upon this realization. We see the rationale that we read just in verse 3, but the psalmist describes the response prior to that. 
in verses 1 and 2. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. Let us sing. You see, He makes this realization. He makes this claim about who God is, but it doesn't stay up there. It's not simply abstract. Let us sing. Let us bow down in worship. Let us shout aloud. Do you see? It involves the whole person. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a manner that involves the whole person. Your lips, your knees, your thought processes, your behavior. Worship never lies dormant. It moves you to action. But there's something else we need to see, and this is so cool. Verse 2, let us come before Him. Or some translations have it, let us come into His presence. But the underlying Hebrew word is very specific. It's face. Let us come before God's face. Let us come and look into God's face. Let us come and allow Him to look into our face. He is a king above all gods, and in His hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountains, mountain peaks, belong to Him. It's staggering. It's jaw-droppingly powerful. It's knee-buckling if we really believe that, if we recognize that. But for the psalmist, when he realizes this, this kingly power doesn't cause him to run and cower in fear, but it causes him to come into God's presence. It causes him to look into God's face. That's what God is inviting You see all of these mountain peaks. You see the earth. You see the stars. This amazing creation. Let that draw you into His presence. Let that draw you into His face. Have you ever been set up on a blind date? Someone tells you, well, they're so beautiful. They're so handsome. They have a great job. They're a good conversationalist. They're intelligent and witty. And you're like, okay, stop. You're making me nervous. I don't know if I can measure up to that. They sound perfect. Well, we hear all of this and we know a good bit about them, right? We feel like we're coming to know them. Maybe we go on Facebook and we stalk them. Or if you live in Silicon Valley, you go on LinkedIn and you find out about them. You're able to develop a pretty sophisticated, pretty accurate picture of them. But it's not until you sit down and interact with them. It's not until you sit down face to face that you begin to truly know them that you begin to truly come to answer, can I trust them? Is this someone I want to know? Is this someone that I want to spend more time with them? There's something about being face-to-face, looking into someone's eyes that gives you so much more information than anyone could have told you about them, than anything you could have discovered online. Poets tell us that the eyes are the windows to the soul. The claim of this psalm is that what real worship is is that kind of access to God. That kind of access to the person who made the mountains and the seas. To experience the relational presence of God. That is worship. You're invited to look into God's eyes and for Him to look into yours. And don't we want that? As Josh said earlier, don't we want to be gazed upon and scrutinize, and yet for someone not to break eye contact? 
Don't we desire to be fully known and not just the other person know an image or a projection to know our posture? But don't we, know, don't we long to be truly known and for that person not to break gaze with us, for that person to look at us and truly see us and love us? Don't we want that ultimately from God? We long to be truly seen by our parents, our spouses, our children, by the people that we work with us, that work with us. And we give them, we allow them to hold sway over us. They hold sway over our anxiety, over our fears, over our, our sense of self-worth, our happiness. They do, in fact, have power. But if you're a Christian, they only have relative power. They only have relative power. Because the one whose gaze is most powerful, is most penetrating, is most scrutinizing. The face of the one who holds the earth in his hands. He knows you. He sees you. And yet, he invites you, come and be in my presence. Let me gaze upon you. Receive my warm love. Receive my face. Sit before me and let me tell you over and over that you are loved more powerfully than anyone else could tell you and more powerful than anyone else could tell you that they don't love you. Let both of those things be relativized by God's gaze, by His looking upon you with great approval and great affection. Come before Him. Come into His presence. Why? For He is our God. Notice that relational language. For He is our God. God belongs to us and we belong to Him. This is the language of covenant faithfulness and intimacy. It's parental language. Come into His presence. Why? Because He is our God and we are the people of His pasture and the flock under His care. The Bible uses this shepherding imagery all the time. And it's something that conveys to those people in those ancient days. They had a very intimate understanding of the shepherd and the sheep. And it conveys one of intimate knowledge that the shepherd knows his sheep and one of relational care. Biblical worship is recognizing and praising the astounding power, the transcendence and license of God, and yet being drawn in rather than running away. It's so counterintuitive. Awe. Jaw-droppingly powerful and yet intimate. Come and be held and loved and nurtured by Me. True worship, you see, begins when you're not only awed by the creative power of God, His magnificence, but when you open yourself up to His gaze. When you become vulnerable and open to Him and what He wants to do in your life. If you want to have a great relationship with anyone, with a spouse, with a child, with a parent, you can't do so from a distance, but you choose to enter into repeatedly vulnerable, open relationship with them. You share with them your worries, your fears, your hopes, your weaknesses, your needs, your fragmentation. You bring that to them and entrust that to them and the relationship flourishes. And that's exactly what is being recommended here, invited here. That we come into God's presence. We look upon His face and we share those things with Him. Now maybe you clued into another part of the psalm. One that doesn't sound so much like 
the give and take of a loving relationship, give and take intimacy, because in verse 6 he says, come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. That sounds like a bit of a twist, right? Because we're normally only open to giving, uh, we're normally only comfortable giving openness and vulnerability and intimacy to those that we see as what? Our equals. It makes sense to do that, but not to someone above us. We're very careful, for instance, at work. We don't want to share our weaknesses, our fears, our anxieties with those above us because they have power over us. They hold sway over a significant part of our lives. We tend to think of submission and allegiance in completely different categories from intimacy and openness and vulnerability. So how are we then to be intimate, trusting, vulnerable before one who is our Lord, before one who calls us to bow down in His presence? Well, we should see that even though we tend to separate submission and intimacy, allegiance and openness, that we often don't live that way. The psalm doesn't say, come, begin to worship, but it says instead, come, let us worship God. Let us kneel before the Lord. Not begin to worship, but worship something different. Worship God. Worship something, someone who can hold the weight of your worship. I was reading a few weeks ago in a tech blog, uh, a sort of news site tech blog called Live Science, and they were looking at this unadulterated loyalty that rises up around these iconoclastic brands like Harley-Davidson and Apple and so forth, and that these following, these uh, uh, followings exhibit sort of a religious fervor. If you go to San Francisco in the time that Apple announces products, they stand up and cheer They're elated. It's almost like shouting to the Lord, right? There's this religious fervor. And they seem to rise up in these grassroots movements with their own rituals, with their own traditions. And these groups often form out of the desire to be part of something, to be in on something, that there's a shared sense among the members that they understand something, they're a part of something that other people aren't. They're in on something that, that not everyone else gets. And in this article, they quoted um, a professor actually at the U of O, Lynn Colley, and she says, I, I think people have values that they're pursuing. They have core goals in their life, and it's different for different people. But Apple has done a good job of becoming symbolically part of one type of life, lifestyle or one type of concept. The brand becomes more than just a set of attributes to get you someone somewhere. It's a core part of who you are. Apple, Harley-Davidson, probably not Harley-Davidson for many people in this room, maybe some, but I know a lot of you are Apple people, as I am, becomes a core part of who you are. It's a core part, and this Worship, this religious fervor, has all the trappings of true worship, of fealty, of submission. Not just intellectual alignment alone. I think Apple is the best. Instead, no, I worship. How do we worship? Well, if your religious community is Apple, let's follow that down a little bit. Well, we begin pouring over tech blogs and rumor sites. Do you notice as soon as The Apple iPhone is released. There's rumor mills that start about the next model that's a year and a half away. What will it have? What kind of specs will it have? How will it be faster? How will it make my life better? 
How much better will it make me look when I put the eye watch on? Maybe we shouldn't buy that latte because we want to save up for the new laptop, the new phone. Maybe we shouldn't go out to dinner this week because we want to have that watch on our wrist when it comes out. Isn't that intimacy? Isn't that love? And isn't that lordship? Isn't that submission? Isn't that kneeling? You see, these two ideas, these two concepts do in fact go together. They always go together. If you fall in love with another human being, you begin to change your habits to be around them. You alter your calendar. You negotiate your time with other important things so that you can spend more time with the person that you now love. You negotiate your commitments to secure time, face-to-face time with them. And this behavior can be driven by uh, a a love interest, a romantic love interest, a, a drug, a creed, a political ideology, or a gadget. Love and submission, intimacy and fidelity, they always go together. The Bible never says start worshiping, but worship God instead. Because unlike that new product, that new wardrobe, that new job, that new achievement, He will love you back intimately and fully and eternally. He will give Himself to you. He will sacrifice for you. He will care for you. Unlike any of the other love interests will. And worship, friends, essentially is receiving that care. It's opening yourself up to the face of God, to the care of God. It's being vulnerable before Him and saying, yes, You are my Lord because You love me. I submit to You because You love me. I submit to You and I love You in return. Worship is receiving that care. And we're in the middle middle of a series on spiritual rhythms, spiritual formation. So how do we receive that? How do we worship, practically speaking? And I'll finish with this. How do we worship? How do we receive that care, practically speaking? Two simple things. We do so corporately. We do so individually. First of all, corporately, notice the whole psalm is plural. Let us worship, not let me worship. You can imagine David or whoever it was that wrote the psalm sitting alone writing, and it would be natural and normal for him to say, let me worship, as in a journal. But no, he says, let us worship. He's conscious of the worshiping community, that he's part of something broader and larger and essential in his life. Let us worship. Everything in this psalm is us. It's all us. When you say, well, can I go on a hike and worship? Can I just sit in my easy chair on Sunday morning and pray? Coming to church is kind of a lot of trouble. You know, I'm pretty tired on Sunday. It's been a long week. And I don't like all those people anyway. Well, yes, you can. You absolutely can. But these things are great supplements. They're supplements to corporate worship, not a substitute. C.S. Lewis says in his wonderful book, The Four Loves, he tells this uh, anecdote. And he says, in, in each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. And then he tells of a friend who's died. Now Charles is dead. 
And I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. We possess each friend not less, but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. Isn't that amazing? There were these three great friends and one died. And what C.S. Lewis is saying, when I lost friend A, I figured, well, if at least it means I have more of friend B. But he begins to realize that he lost part of friend B that only friend A could bring out. He began to realize that you can only truly know an individual in fellowship with other people. You can only know the, the depths of that person's personality as you see them interacting with other people, as you see them participating in community. And the same is true of God. That you will never really know God unless you corporately praise, corporately pray, corporately study the Word of God. You have to do it with others. Or you become impoverished. You get a, a little portion of who God really is. You see only what you are wired up and maybe even what you want to see. You have to do it with other people. And that's the reason that corporate Christian worship is so crucial. One of the reasons, anyway. How do you begin to worship corporately, then also individually? You see, the last part of Psalm 95 is about an incident that happened in the history of Israel, and you can read about it in Exodus 17. They're in this specific place, Massah and Meribah, and they don't listen to God's Word. They're getting into, into their rest in the promised land, is delayed, and they are wandering in the wilderness. That's what the psalmist is referring back to. And every day, they had to get up and they had to put everything they owned on pack mules or on their backs to trans, uh, transition to the next place. Getting to the promised land is a metaphor for what? It's a metaphor for getting to God. And so is this wandering. The wandering is a metaphor for seeking rest. Every day, they had to get up and put everything they owned on their backs to pursue life at the next place. They were never at rest. They were wandering in the wilderness looking for rest. I don't know about you, but that sounds quite familiar. That sounds quite familiar to me in my own life. Every day, we have to get up and put our lives on our back, put our meaning on our back, put our security on our back. We have to shoulder that burden and carry it. We're scurrying around trying to make our lives worth something and we can't rest. Every day we're trying to complete the sentence of I matter because X, Y, Z. We're trying to achieve something that we can point to and say, that's it. That's my meaning. Fundamentally, this is an issue of worship because worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something in a way that involves your whole person. The psalm doesn't say start worshiping, but come and worship God Himself. Because getting to Him means stopping pointing at those things and allowing God to be that thing. And if you read forward in the New Testament, Hebrews 4 tells us that the promised land was in fact a metaphor. It was a physical place but it symbolized something that was coming, something deeper. 
It wasn't the final destination for God's people. It was a metaphor for this deeper rest that we all need. And that ultimately rest doesn't come by us making the difficult journey to God, but by Him making the difficult journey to us. That Jesus empathized with our weakness, with our weariness, with the fact that we were so exhausted and He came to rescue us from it. He comes to take off the burdens that we're carrying around. All of those ways that we're trying to make life ourselves. And He says, put those on Me. Let Me carry those. Let Me give you rest. And when He becomes our object of worship, when He becomes that which we point to to finish the sentence, I know I'm worth something because when He's really and truly, not just up here, not just in our heads, but when He really and truly is the answer to that the completion of that sentence, then you can rest. When we no longer have to look to our career, our appearance, our possessions, our spouse to gain a sense of self-worth, when we're not constantly picking that up every morning and carrying it all day because we want so desperately to be loved and to be worth something, when we finally give that away to Him and let Him carry that, we can rest. Friends, that's the call to worship is Look instead at what Jesus has done for you. Look at the burdens that He has carried for you. Rest in His labors. labors. Rest in His love. Rest in His delight. Rest in His sacrifice. Ascribe ultimate value to Him in a manner that involves your whole person. And actually, that's rest. That's the secret of worship. And if you know the secret of worship, your life will begin to change because you become you come to resemble that which you worship. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that as we continue to worship, that you would change us. That our worship wouldn't be abstract or theoretical, but that as we picture you, as we in a few moments sing to you, as we eat of the body and blood of Jesus, as we confess what we believe, Lord, I pray that that would change us, that we would begin to see You as the object of worship that is worthy, and that we would begin to see our lives change. Father, let us not seek to change so that we can come to You, but let us come to You so that we can change and be changed. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.